1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 5. If you have your Bibles open, why don't you do me a favor and go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God Himself is speaking to us. Beginning in verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let's pray together. Oh God, I ask if you would please open our hearts and minds today to receive your word. And God, I pray we would be changed by your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Near the end of his life, the famous 19th century British pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon uh, became, became embroiled in his greatest controversy. He was the most famous preacher of his day and really one of the most famous preachers in all of history. And so he had several different times when he became embroiled in controversy, but this was the greatest and the worst of them all. It has come to be known as the downgrade controversy. Most students of Spurgeon's life believed it accelerated the decline of Spurgeon's already poor health and in fact maybe led to his early death. Uh, this controversy centered around many pastors in the Baptist Union, something like the convention of which we're a part, something like a convention of churches, that had adopted theology that was abandoning the core truths of the faith. And I don't mean they were just finding some minor disagreements on a few different things, but that Spurgeon had come to believe and had come to hear that there were people had, who had begun to, in an outright way, deny the faith once for all delivered to the saints, deny things like a bodily resurrection, deny things that we would consider essential truths, that all Christians at all times would consider essential truths of the faith. This year, it's one of many biographies I've read of Spurgeon, but it's probably the, the definitive biography of Spurgeon by Lewis Drummond. I've been reading it this year. And in it, he shares many of the details that had made the, that what, about what made the episode so difficult for Spurgeon. In particular, and I want you to listen carefully. In particular, the secretary of the, of the Baptist Union, a guy named Samuel Booth, had shared with Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a little nervous about the direction things were going, and so he talked to the secretary of the Union about this, and he, 
he shared Spurgeon's concerns and in fact made it worse by telling Spurgeon multiple pastors in the Union who had come to believe in a sort of modernist theology that no longer held to the truth of the Scriptures. He shared with him names and instances of heretical theology among pastors in the Union. And on top of all that, he urged Spurgeon to speak. He urged Spurgeon to do something about it. He was hoping he could use his influence. He was hoping he could use the power that he had because he had the largest church in the world at the time, largest Protestant church in the world at the time. He, he thought Spurgeon might could help, help turn the tide on the direction things were going. And so when Spurgeon finally blew the whistle and it came time to name names, Booth had told Spurgeon that everything that he told him was in confidence. He wrote in the letter, and Drummond shares the letter, and shows in the letter where Booth had said, it would be a matter of honor for you to not share anything I've told you. That is, at the last moment, Booth abandoned him and left Spurgeon sort of out to dry. By the end of the whole episode, Spurgeon withdrew his membership from the Baptist Union, and he was ultimately censured by the body, saying he shouldn't have brought the claims that he brought. Now, in history, we've seen... Spurgeon was telling the truth. The Baptist Union began a really sharp decline, not only theologically but numerically from those days forward. And nobody really knows why Booth had abandoned him at the last minute, why Booth really hung him out to dry. However, it's very clear what Booth did was make Spurgeon out to be a liar. He made him out to be a liar. And I don't know if you've ever told the truth and been accused of lying, but it's a really difficult thing to experience. I don't know if, if you've ever been lied about, but it's a very difficult thing to experience, to be made out to be a liar. However, God sees and God knows. This morning, John tells us that Christian belief is warranted, that Christian belief is reasonable, and not just reasonable, but warranted. He's saying we ought to believe what the Bible says. And he says it's warranted to the point that he makes this very bold claim. Listen to what he says in verse 10. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Now, as we read this and, and hear this, John almost sounds, I don't know if you're like me, but to most modern ears, John almost sounds crazy to us. In other words, shouldn't we tone it down just a little bit, we might think? I mean, does he not know how hard it is to believe in Christianity? I mean, we weren't there. We didn't see it happen. Does he not know how foolish modern man finds all the stuff in the Bible? Does he not know how difficult it is? I feel like so often as Christians, we regularly spend our time being so defensive of Christian truth claims that we miss the fact that the Bible presents it as something people ought to believe. That if you really were to consider this the way you ought to consider it, you would believe in it, all things being considered. You see, I'm afraid sometimes that we have drunk the Kool-Aid of secularism so deeply, even as Christians, that we sort of believe it's unwarranted to believe the gospel. We believe that there's this great wide chasm you have to jump over to believe this stuff is true. It, it seems like John is crazy to us, but really, John is talking as if it's crazy not to believe that the gospel is true. Uh, this morning, I want you to hear God's testimony. I want you to hear what God has said about the truth of the gospel 
And I hope for those of you who are here today as believers, I hope your faith will be strengthened by the testimony of God. And for those of you who are here today as unbelievers, my my hope and prayer is that you will find what God has said compelling, that you will see the evidence as reasonable, and you will understand that Christian belief is warranted. Uh, This morning, I want to show you three truths about God's testimony concerning His Son and why you ought to believe in Jesus. I, I want to encourage you, believe it or not, you might be surprised to hear this from a Baptist preacher, but I want you to believe in Jesus. That's what I want you to do. And I think the Bible gives us excellent reasons why we should. Three truths this morning concerning God's testimony about our Lord Jesus Christ and three reasons ultimately why you ought to believe in Jesus. Here's point number one. Point number one. God has testified concerning His Son. God has testified concerning His Son. I think this is one of the things I hear a lot. People say things to me like, I just wish God would just say what's true. I wish God would just show me. I wish God would just give us evidence that these things are true. So let me encourage you here to behold God's evidence. This is written by the Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' dearest friends. He calls himself in another gospel, the one whom Jesus loved, probably Jesus' closest confidant in his earthly life. And some people might see that as a weakness uh, in terms of believing him. But I don't know if you've ever been friends with a group of men, but uh, oftentimes those who are closest to someone are the ones who are most able to see their flaws and faults. And I don't know if you've ever been a, around a group of 20 and something, 20 and 30-something-year-old men, but it's really hard because so often there are way too many chiefs and not enough Indians in the group, right? And so for this group of 12 men to sort of all come together and say, no, that one's the one who is our Lord, our Master, our Teacher, and in fact, He is in fact God. It's saying a lot about what the Bible claims. All that being said here, John is giving us evidence Evidence, evidence of what God has said about His Son. Verse 5 makes it clear. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? He's talked about overcoming faith, faith that overcomes the world. And he's making, making sure in verse 5 it's really clear. This faith must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And then John goes on to sort of develop a little bit more of a theology about who Jesus is and what God has said about Jesus, beginning in verse 6. This is He, the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is He. Jesus, the Son of God, is He who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Now, this feels like a cryptic and strange way to sort of introduce how Jesus came into the world. But I want you to go back in your mind just a moment, back to 1 John chapter 1, and and to remember what John said was that this is he who we have seen, this is he who we beheld, this is he who we touched. John is, is really passionate about demonstrating historical evidence for who Jesus is. And so, though scholars have disagreed, the consensus has really come to what John means when he talks about the water and the blood are the bookends of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. How did Jesus start his ministry? I'm sure you remember. Jesus started his ministry by being baptized by John the Baptist. 
Does anybody remember this episode? He came by the water. He came before he began his public ministry. The Lord Jesus Christ came, and he was baptized by John. And in one of the most beautiful moments in all of the Bible, you see heaven open up right there at the Jordan River, and you see a picture of who God is and what God is doing in the world. Do you remember what happens? As the sun goes into the water being baptized by John the Baptist, not John who wrote this letter, he is being baptized by John, and as he's going under the water, what happens? Those who see and look, they see the Holy Spirit descending on the Lord Jesus, a a picture of his anointing that's happening where the Holy Spirit is descending on him. And the Bible says it was descending on him like a dove. People could see a physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit descending on the Lord Jesus Christ, a picture of his anointing as the Messiah, as God's chosen one, as the Christ. And as he is being baptized by John in the water, and as the Holy Spirit is descending on him, at the same time, a voice comes from heaven, the voice of the Father. And what does the voice say? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now I want you to consider the beauty of the beginning of this baptism. I mean, the beginning of the Lord's ministry through this baptism. You can see the way Jesus came by water, and in that very moment, God testified. Could there be a more clear testimony? The anointing of the Holy Spirit is resting upon him. All throughout the Old Testament, there are pictures of the fact that the Holy Spirit will rest on the Messiah of God. We see uh, uh, situation after situation that is pointing forward to that reality. What would happen when Samson or the other judges would go out to fight the battles of the Lord? The Holy Spirit would rush on them and they would go out and deliver the people of God. What happened to Saul when he became king over Israel? The, the Holy Spirit came came and rested on him, and he prophesied. And what happened when God removed the anointing from Saul as king, when God purposed to uh, lay Saul low as king, the Holy Spirit left him, and Saul began to be tormented. David received the Holy Spirit when he became king. He was anointed for a purpose. The same way the Holy Spirit was descending on Jesus. And if that's not enough, to see the Father himself speaks out of the unique role which the Son had. This is something that happened objectively and historically. We have witnesses of this fact. But Jesus did not come only by the water. He did not only begin his ministry. How did Jesus end his public ministry? Now, this is the one I think everyone knows. Jesus ended his public ministry with his death. Over and over and over, the gospel authors make it clear to us that the end goal, the purpose for which Jesus came into the world was not to perform miracles, The purpose for which Jesus came into the world was not to just teach, even though those are things he did and those are important parts of his ministry. Ultimately, all these things are moving toward and leading toward his crucifixion, where he would be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, where he would be the propitiation for our sins, where he would take the wrath of God on our behalf at the cross. Here, John is referencing the atoning work of Jesus at the cross. This is he who came by water and the blood. Every single person, the most hardened, unbelieving scholar out there who believes that Jesus existed historically, believes he was crucified by the Roman Empire. Now, there are some who just say he's merely a myth, but I think there's plenty of evidence to suggest that Jesus of Nazareth lived, and most people, all people who believe Jesus of Nazareth lived, believed he was crucified. 
is something that happened as historical fact. And so John says, this is he who came not only by water, not only by his baptism, but this is also not only he who was announced publicly as he began his ministry, but also he who was crucified publicly at the end of his ministry. But the story doesn't end there. And John doesn't leave us there either. He says, this is he who came not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Two, first two witnesses, the water and the blood, corroborate and agree with the third witness, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who descended on Jesus at his baptism. The Holy Spirit by whom the author of Hebrews tells us the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ was offered to the Father at the cross. And the Holy Spirit, who the Scripture teaches us, was the power of God which raised the Lord Jesus from the dead on the third grave, on the third day that burst Him forth from the grave. It was the Holy Spirit who worked to quicken the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Death could not hold Him. Death could not keep Him because He lived a perfect life. And so the Holy Spirit then has testified through the resurrection. There's really good evidence that Jesus raised from the dead. The Holy Spirit has testified through the works of the apostles. We read about those in the book of Acts that comes after the Gospels in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit has testified through inspiring the Scriptures, including the passage that we're reading today. The Holy Spirit has testified through building the church. The Holy Spirit continually testifies in the lives and hearts of believers in the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit to the truth of the gospel. What is John doing here? John is building evidence for what he introduced to us in chapter 1. That which we have seen, that which we have looked upon, that which we have touched with our hands. He is now saying these three witnesses testify that Jesus of Nazareth is in fact our Lord Jesus the Christ, the Messiah of God. Three witnesses are here and these three agree. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. So often, I think we think that Christian belief is just sort of suspended in midair. It's not. I think some people think this, that it's just sort of out there. We don't really have any evidence. We don't really believe for any good reason. No, we, we believe it's, it's rooted in actual historical events. Uh, we believe that the gospel is rooted in actual historical evidence. We believe that the gospel is rooted in actual activity from the Holy Spirit. God is at work. There's not one aspect of what it means for us to want to believe something that God has not provided us with. God has given us compelling, reasonable testimony concerning His Son. God has spoken concerning His Son. Second of all, I think it's important that we know not only, not only, that God has testified concerning His Son. But second of all, God's testimony is worthy of belief. You ought to believe what God says. You ought to believe what God says. Sometimes when somebody tells me something, and I don't know them very well, I'll call somebody that knows them. Say, hey, th this person has said this to me. Is this someone I can trust? Is what I'm saying from them something I can trust? I, I want you to know that I, I would argue that you can trust what God says. I can tell you that I believe that the words of the Bible are what God has said. Friends, we cannot pretend that God hasn't spoken. We can't pretend that mere reason 
If, if you're an unbeliever today, I, I want you to just for a moment consider that it's not pure or mere reason that keeps you from believing that Jesus is God's Son. I don't think it's pure reason that keeps you from that. I think there are other factors at work. In fact, we can't really pretend that what man says about the world automatically makes more sense than what God has said. There are all sorts of things in our culture and those around us, and even some of us as Christians, sort of just believe at face value without thinking it. There are all sorts of axioms and truths that people believe that they really don't evaluate very often. I want you to consider for a moment the cocktail of beliefs that our culture generally assumes. I want you to hear first, though, what John says as we consider this. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, what is it that man says? Well, what are the beliefs that our culture generally assumes? Well, one is materialism. Two is secularism. Materialism is the idea that this world is all there is. There's nothing really beyond the material, the physical, sort of a generally atheistic view. Number two is secularism. That is, even if there is a God, he really, if religion is important, it really has no place in the public square. It really needs to kind of stay out at the margins and the fringes. Uh, third of all, another sort of axiomatic belief we have in our culture is that true meaning is found only in our authentic self. We're highly individualistic in our culture and society. And then fourth of all, I would say another thing is that politics are the ultimate good and gain in the world. Now, in all sincerity, if you take four of those things, popular beliefs, I would say, in the culture we live in, in all sincerity, is there a single one of these beliefs that warrants no scrutiny whatsoever? Let's just take, for example, materialism. Spend 30 seconds in front of Multnomah Falls outside Portland, Oregon. I've been there. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. I cried when I looked at it. This is amazing. I don't know what will happen if I ever go to the Grand Canyon. Blubber like an idiot. Spend 30 seconds in front of Multnomah Falls or the Grand Canyon or a great and grand mountain range or a crystal clear night sky. Be in the room when a child is born. Any, any of these sorts of experiences. And, it, 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 and metaphysical realities suddenly seem plausible. That is, you sit there and you look at the vast night sky and your heart doesn't automatically go, I am alone in the universe and there's nothing else out there and all that exists is what I can see, touch, taste, and smell. Now you look out at that and you, you look at the Grand Canyon, you look at this great waterfall and you don't automatically just go to those things. You know, your heart begins to soar, tears begin to well up in your eyes, you begin to get a sense of the fact that there's something more to life than just what you can see, just what you can get your hands on. There are all sorts of chinks in the armor of materialism. There are all sorts of evidences that there's more to life than just what is here. There's more to life than just stuff. Something's out there. What about secularism? Sort of idea that since the Enlightenment, it's been popular, that every, every generation is the last religious generation. Over and over and over again, it's just not true. We're not becoming less religious over time. In fact, our innate religious nature is unavoidable. And a true secularism is a lot less desirable than folks make it seem. Do we really want to live in a society that's totally devoid of any religious influence? Any Christian influence? 
Even our most secular friends, even our friends that are most antagonistic toward Christianity and Christian influence still enjoy a lot of the remnants of Christian influence in our society. Do we really want to live in a world where there's no religious liberty? Where there's no sense in protecting the weak and the vulnerable? When we don't have a desire to protect women and children from sexual harm or any other kind of harm? All of these things are representative. You think about it for a moment. All of these things are representative of the triumph of Christian morals in the history of the world. In fact, just recently I read a book called Dominion by an author named Tom Holland, a a secular historian. He's not a believer. And he showed the way that really so much of what we take for granted in the modern world is really a representation of the triumph of Christian morals. Our world is not as secular as we think it is, and we don't want it to be as secular as a lot of people think we do. What about the other thought? Is finding all of our meaning within our true, authentic selves actually making anyone happier? It's kind of weird. We're working on that harder than we ever have. Finding meaning. Finding our true, authentic selves. Living out our most authentic self. Living my truth. Working on it harder than we've ever worked on it. And yet, people don't seem to be any happier. There's not been a net gain in happiness. In fact, our young people seem to be having the highest levels of anxiety and depression and everything else they've ever had in our culture and society. With all this being the case, it feels like more and more people look to politics for ultimate meaning and ultimate good. When you don't believe in God, when you don't think that there's any sort of appeal to any greater authority outside ourselves or outside our country or outside anything else, if you think all that you really need is to be as individualistic as possible, then the best way to sort of handle things is to appeal to the government, to deal with things through politics. It feels like more and more people look to politics for ultimate meaning and ultimate good. I don't think I really have to argue with you to convince you that that's not working. I don't think anybody's saying, you know what, that's right, politics is going great. No, all of us recognize the sort of profound anxiety and difficulty and challenges that putting your hope in politics presents. I'll just put it like this. I have no desire to sign up for an eschatology for a hope that resets every two to four years. No desire for that. It's not to say these things are important. It's just to say that's not where our hope is. If we receive the testimony of men, this is what man seems to say. This is what man seems to say. This is what our culture seems to say. But notice what John says. Verse 9 isn't in there. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Take, Take a moment to stack up what the gospel says against the wisdom of the age. God made the world and everything in it. There is a God and, in fact, a whole spiritual world that transcends this world. Doesn't that make more sense than sheer materialism? Doesn't it make sense that humans for millennia have believed that there's something greater than this world? Are we going to be so snobbish that we just believe they've always had it totally wrong? God reigns and rules over His creation and is present among His people. Doesn't the presence and influence of a holy and loving God make more sense and a secularism that depends solely on man's thought? And can't we see the bad fruit that's been born of purely secular societies and purely secular ideologies? Now, we can see the way that bad theology has also borne bad fruit, but I'm not advocating for bad theology. I'm advocating for what God has said, not for what man says God has said. 
Christianity offers truest and deepest meaning outside ourselves in God and community. Christianity offers hope and victory that is beyond this world and beyond this life. We can have a hope in heaven. Uh, Friends, the testimony of God is greater than the testimony of man. We can believe God. God doesn't lie. The Bible says when we don't believe God, we have made him out to be a liar. And I just ask you the question, do you really believe what you're being told? Do, Do we really believe that the promises that the world makes, the promises that man makes, are greater than what God offers us in his gospel? I ask you to truly stack it up, to truly evaluate these truths. Believe God, he does not lie. Uh, God has testified concerning his son. God's testimony is worthy of belief. And finally, my third point this morning is this. God's testimony is good news. God's testimony is good news. Notice what the Bible says, verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. And whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, of course, I think you ought to believe what God has said. It's reasonable, I think it's warranted to believe what God has said. But perhaps, and maybe more importantly, I think you should want to believe what God has said. I hope you'll see it for what it genuinely is, good news. The truth of the gospel is beautiful. The good news, my friends, is eternal life. A life that transcends all, all, everything and anything that man could or would promise. Sure, we can win in this world, but God offers us something beyond this world. He gave us eternal life. Eternal, it lasts forever. And life, it is genuinely life. It's just what it sounds like. Everything good and beautiful about this world will be redeemed and perfected. And everything wrong and ugly and sinful in this world will be destroyed and made right. God promises us a life to come that makes all things good and new. So often we get the sense that heaven would be boring. That it would be a big snooze fest. But brothers and sisters, God offers us eternal life. Whatever it is that's wonderful and lovely about this world that God made will be there in the next life, times a million, in infinity, perfectly there for God's creatures to enjoy. Do you see the beauty of what God offers? There's nothing that's temporary. There's nothing you can lose. There's nothing that's burdensome. There's nothing you have to earn. There's nothing you have to work for. God offers it freely. The gospel is good news. Can you imagine how wonderful it would be right now to have your authentic and true self not be something you have to journey to find, but something that's given to you freely, that God reveals it to you through the gospel of His Son? Brothers and sisters, but the other thing we must remember is that the good news is only through Jesus. And the good news is only through Jesus. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Eternal life that God offers, the beauty and hope and wonder and glory that God offers, is in His Son and in His Son alone. So many people are troubled, deeply troubled by the exclusive claims of Christianity. The 
exclusivity of the gospel. But today, I ask you, why in the world would God want you to go chase after something that won't work? Something that won't satisfy you? Something that won't give you eternal life? God is not centering His plan on His Son just to be ugly to other religions or or just to make sure that everyone is in one simple way or, or acts a certain way. No, God is offering you His Son because it's the only place where you can find life. Everything else is a false gospel. And I am thankful for my Father who will not give an inch on giving us our greatest hope and our greatest joy and pure perfection that can only be found in His Son. God won't settle for lesser gifts. He will only give you His greatest gift, and that's through His Son. Whoever has the Son has life, but I want you to know, if you have anything else but the Son of God, you do not have the life that God offers. He offers it freely. Don't you want that to be true? Don't you want to know the One who made you? Don't you want to know Jesus? My friends, the Bible expects you to believe but not for no reason. I challenge you today, will you evaluate the testimony of God? Will you compare it to the testimony of man? Will you make a commitment to genuinely evaluate whether the good news is good? If you're an unbeliever, will you do that? Will you really, truly dive deep into the gospel? If you If you are struggling with this, I want you to know I'll buy you a book and we'll read it together and we'll sit and talk as long as you want to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ if you'll genuinely evaluate it. If you're a believer, I want you to genuinely think through what you believe and ask yourself these questions. Friends, I ask you this question. Do you want to believe that the gospel is true if you don't believe in Jesus? I hope you do. I hope you'll evaluate it. And perhaps even today, you will put your trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never trusted Jesus before, I believe if you turn from your your sins and repentance and turn to God in faith through Jesus, you will be saved. After this prayer, I want to invite you to do business with the Lord. If you need someone to talk to, I'll be down front, or you can talk to Him right where you are. Second of all, you may be a believer, and you may say, Pastor, I I just need to strengthen my faith. I need someone to talk to. I need some help. I've been struggling with doubt. Love to talk to you about the Scripture teaches. Love to work with you through any resources that would be helpful to you. Or if you just need someone to pray with you today, you come on down front. Or if you just want to use this altar, it's here for you to pray today. Finally, you may be looking for a church home. It'd be my joy to talk to you today about what it means to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together.